Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Promoting peace, liberty, and prosperity around the clock. LibertyTalk.fm. Welcome to Medicine on Call, where it's all about living in the solutions. Today I have a very special guest on who I'm looking forward to speaking with. This is Dr. Evan Allen. He's an author of a new book called Oversaturated, a guide to, to conversations about fats with your patients. And I wanted to have Dr. Allen on because we talk a lot about how you take your power back. And it's not a drug that's going to do it. It's not, you know, big pharma. It's about people making conscious choices about how to, to get healthy. And I think there's been so many different diets. Now we're into vegan. It seems to be the thing that's being pounded, that we should have that, and that's the best way to stay healthy. But I like to go back in time to something that's really more of a foundation, and that's fats, saturated, unsaturated fats. I remember when I was a kid, you know, when margarine came out, that was the next best thing, and it's, like, totally toxic. Um, and with people, obesity exploding, with diabetes exploding, and honestly, if I see one more drug commercial about how you can take a pill and it's all going to be over, I'm just done with it. So I, I, I wanted, Dr. Allen, thank you, first of all, for coming on the show today. But I wanted to get... Well, thank you some, for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I wanted to give our listeners some information. And you're a, a practicing physician, um, board certified from the American Board of Obesity Medicine, and you practice in Nevada, and you've been a practicing physician for a quarter of a century. So you've, like myself, been there, done that, seen, I think we've been trained probably the same way, which is old school medicine. You know, you fix the problem right. and not just drug it. So thank you again for coming on. Um, I know I, I kind of gave a little bit of hint about what you do, but how did you end up writing this book? Because it's a labor of love. It's a, to me, it's apparent that you just didn't want to be a physician, you wanted to educate, and I really love that. Yeah, well, the number of people you can see in a day is much smaller than the number of people you can reach with something that's going to be read over uh, a broad audience. So if you if we really care about uh, the health of all the patients, we can't just uh, work in the clinic by one-on-one. One -on -one. So we have to have a method for that information to get out further. And probably the fastest and most efficient way to get that information out further in a way people will trust is to target the medical providers and the people who they're seeing that they already trust and get them to understand the lay of the land. And that's why I picked the target audience for the book that I did, which is other healthcare providers. But I do want to point out that anybody who reads the book who has a high school level education or above should be able to follow the arguments in the book. And there's no technical knowledge that you need to be able to understand uh, what I'm putting forth in the book. Um, so I hope that uh, anybody who's listening, whether they're in the medical field or not, would be able to read it and, and get something very valuable out of it. Well, I think it's really, what you're doing is really important for the physician. There's so little time now that doctors on average get to spend with their patients and I don't think a lot of counseling actually goes on. It's just write a script and walk out the door. And I, I think the right, pendulum... Unfortunately, oh, go ahead. No, unfortunately, that's and that's what the insurance model sort of subsidizes. That's what they want uh, out of the current system. 
but, you know, just because they want it, I think I'm becoming more of the mind that we don't have to play their game as doctors or patients. It's time for both of us to take our power back and to stop settling. I mean, we've done it as physicians, unfortunately, over the last 15, 20 years, and we're now paying the price for it. And by definition, so are our patients. So from, but but we don't have to continue to do the same thing, expecting a, di- a different result, do we? Exactly, and that's that's really one of the reasons I ended up uh, forming a different business model and opening a concierge practice where the patients uh, are just contracting with me to take care of their primary care and not worrying about billing insurance or how much time we spend. We have the options to do sort of in-depth lifestyle modification, which takes time and effort and mm-hmm. is not going to be involved in. Typically, the, the number of prescriptions people will need will drop instead of go up under those circumstances. When you opened your practice, did you get any pushback from colleagues who, I mean, I think there's a lot of fear out there, fear of the unknown. And I know that when I first opened my practice, I was told, if you don't take insurance, you won't stay open. Is that still a, a thing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you were told the same thing. What about your colleagues? The pushback, yeah. The pushback is not overt as much, certainly in my case, as so much I would uh, sort of tell them what I was doing and talk to them about the kind of patients that they would see that might be real good fit for me and then hear nothing back. <laughs> it was the, the pushback of silence more than anything else. And, you know, Nevada is pretty, you know, there's a lot of very patients out there. Did you find that patients were, I would think, but I'm curious to know from your perspective, were they hungry for a doctor who actually could spend time with them and actually get to know them? Yeah, it's, a, it's unfortunately a minority of patients, but it's a substantial enough minority that the business model has been successful. And uh, I also still operate a traditional family practice using mid-levels and physician extenders mm-hmm. so that um, I have, you know, the availability to provide good care to anybody at any level, but um, the obviously the concierge practice and doing lifestyle modification is sort of where I really feel there's the most uh, benefit available to a patient and try to explain to people that modern medical care is really good once you have a diagnosis, but pretty horrible at keeping you from getting a diagnosis. And the very best treatment for any severe diagnosis is about a thousand times worse than just not being diagnosed. Mm. So, you know, let's say you're taking a, a condition that's really serious, like breast cancer or rheumatoid arthritis. Modern medicine is really, really good at treating those things, and I don't want to minimize that. But not getting rheumatoid arthritis or not getting breast cancer is a thousand times better than getting them and getting excellent treatment. And we're, we're really falling down and in, in you know, primordial prevention, and that's the point I try to make in the book. We we are really good at waiting and seeing what happens to people when they fall off the cliff and having ambulances and, you know, shock absorbers and everything else down there at the bottom, but we're horrible at putting the fence up at the top of the cliff. I would agree with that. And, you know, a, a corollary to are you getting pushback, the second question is, it, I would think, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you're doing behavior modification, it's not about the, the prescription. And it's a little, I would think, a lot counter to just shoving medications down patients' throats. Is that something that 
other physicians and maybe you don't talk with them to that level, but any pushback from that standpoint, I mean, you're not, you know, writing the newest prescription of the thing that's on TV. You're actually trying to get them off medications, which is a right. completely different mindset. Right. Our mindset is generally de-prescription and trying to, trying to avoid medication when it's possible. But on the other hand, I don't think I'm particular doctrinaire. Whatever's going to work best for the patient. If a mm-hmm. patient can or won't make a certain lifestyle change and there's a medication that I think is beneficial in the long run uh, for their current situation, we still use them. And so I don't, I'm not uh, anti-medication as much as I am anti-unnecessary medication, mm-hmm. which unfortunately is a large number of them, right? Yeah. So if somebody's hypothyroid or something like that where we don't really have any great lifestyle options, we certainly would continue those medications. Certain people genetically need cholesterol medication regardless of what they eat. For those patients, I think, you know, risk reduction is, is well worth the added medication. And so we do a combination of both, and I know how to do both. Um, but the pushback really is in individual consultations when I'm co-managing a patient with another physician and I will try to stop or reduce the dose and then they'll go back and see the other physician. You, you know how that plays out. Right? I do. <laughs> you get too many cooks in the soup and then, so it's, uh, it's always a, a point I try to make to the Patients in those circumstances is, look, you know, this is a good person who's doing what they think is best. I'm a good person. I'm doing what I think is best. And you've really got to make the call on where you want to go in that direction and what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing what somebody recommends and you're not getting good results, you should certainly be open to changing your point of view on that. Mm-hmm. And, again, I welcome and, and, and sort of encourage patients who have questions to seek a second opinion or get a point of view from somebody else because I think that's, uh, really how they're going to figure out what's going to be best for them in the long run. And I'm always sort of surprised when I hear of somebody who's like downplays or doesn't want someone to get a second opinion. And I always wonder, what's going on with that? Why would they not want someone to hear somebody else's point of view? I think that's always beneficial. I couldn't agree more. On that note, let's take our first break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. From treatment of sinusitis with balloon dilation to minimally invasive office procedures to correct snoring, Peachtree ENT Center offers state-of-the-art care. We also specialize in price transparency. You'll know the cost of our ENT services before they're rendered, whether you have a high deductible plan or no insurance at all. Make an appointment today to find out why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. This is Dr. George from Medicine on Call. Each week I speak about our healthcare system and the problems with it. One of the main problems is the doctor-patient relationship. I've found that patients really crave time, the time to ask their doctor questions, and physicians crave the time to answer those questions in a thorough manner. Towards that end, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center is pleased to announce a new video telemedicine service. We now offer consultation for second opinions and for people who'd like to learn more and ask questions about how to navigate the healthcare system in a cost-effective and efficient manner. Go to peachtreeentcenter.video-visits.com to learn more.
Welcome back to Megatron Call. We're speaking with Dr. Evan Allen, the author of Oversaturated, a guide to conversations about fats with your patients. And before the break, we were talking about the mindset of both physicians and patients. And let's talk now about the patients who get it, the people who want to make lifestyle changes. I mean, saturated fats is is a major problem. I mean, well, first of all, let's start off with the food industry. How do you think they've gotten away with literally toxic stuff that they put on in the market? Is it all marketing? I mean, who's standing in the breach to help them or make them toe the line so they stop messing with us? I know it sounds not really a technical question. It doesn't sound very medical, but. I, I think it's a critical point, and it's a point I make in the book, and a point that I've actually come to understand even better since I since I finished publishing the book, a point I would probably put in another edition if I were going to do one, is that advertising in the United States serves two purposes, and it's hard to tell which one is more important. Uh, the first purpose, of course, is the one you think of when you think of advertising, and that is uh, you want to drive consumer behavior one direction or another, right? So uh, the theory is that if I see an ad for uh, let's say Volkswagen or Chevy or Chrysler or whatever, that because the ad was effective, I will A, think more about purchasing a product when I think about purchasing a product, and B, be more inclined to buy their particular product once I've thought about it after I see the ad. And I think that's what the advertising uh, mindset sort of wants you to think about the purpose of advertising. But I, I've been reading uh, Robert Caro's biography of Lyndon Johnson, curiously. And Lyndon Johnson's wife, technically, owned a radio station. And uh, she never wanted uh, for advertisers on her radio station. And the reason was because the advertisers weren't interested in driving consumer behavior. They wanted to fund his radio station so that he would know who was buying advertisements on that radio station and favor them in the decisions that he made in government. And in reality, I think a sizable amount of advertising projects serve that second function, which is to bias the media entity in favor of their industry. Mm -hmm. And so you don't see nearly as many uh, news pieces or articles or uh, you know, cable news uh, jobs or, or any of these things talking about how badly air pollution is killing. Everybody knows that air pollution is killing us, and a cursory examination of the numbers shows that air pollution is killing us. But air polluters are big advertisers, <laughs> so the media doesn't really go after them. And besides pharmaceuticals and cars, what are the what is the other big nationwide ad campaign purchaser? It's the food industry, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, know, you cannot watch a show without an ad for a food product of some type. And in fact, virtually all of these food products, I've, I've tried to keep track while I watch TV of foods that are advertised on TV that I would consider eating. And so far, I've got kiwi fruit. And Uncle Ben's right. And that's it. That's in, in five years of watching TV with that mindset, 
I've got two foods that I've seen advertised that I would consider eating. And so the vast majority of the ads, and we talk about this in the book, are for places like Sonic or Burger King or uh, Arby's or for products like, uh, you know, uh, somebody's home roasted chicken or uh, advertisements for these things. And these are generally going to be foods that are, you know, higher in energy density. They're going to be highly processed. They're going to be full of, uh, you know, uh, industrially created ingredients. And tend, they tend not to be health-promoting and often are health-harming foods. And what does that do with the media? The media then realizes on which side their bread is buttered, literally. And when scientific facts come out that suggest that these food products are dangerous, they may run a piece or two about it. They may pay cursory attention to it while it's hot. But as soon as it's not a hot news item, it's dropped, and, and what you have is, uh, you know, them bragging about how Krispy Kreme donuts got delivered to the set yesterday and how wonderful that is, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the the advertising then serves to uh, keep certain kind of discourse and certain kind of discussion uh, under the table for the majority of the time things are being talked about. We see this in the climate change debate as well. Everybody's eager to talk about Humvees and, and, and big gas guzzling cars, and those are a part of the equation. But agriculture contributes the most nitrous oxide, mm-hmm. and that's the most potent global warming gas with the top three of methane, carbon dioxide, and nitrous oxide. But it's the one that nobody knows about and is discussed at all. And so I think uh, in the same way with saturated fat, what you see is the science is clear-cut. There's really no serious scientific debate about it. Uh, there are numerous avenues of investigation that all lead to an indictment of diatribe saturated fat as being markedly health-harming. And yet what you've seen, especially over the last 12, 15 years, is an attempted part on, uh, an attempt on the part of industry and, and complicity along with, with media uh, to rehabilitate the image of saturated fat and to make people genuinely believe that it's actually beneficial for health, uh, which couldn't be further from the truth. And that's pretty mercenary. I mean, but where's... It's just business, though. Yeah, but what is the AMA and the rest of the medical societies? They just silent with this? Or uh, the I think heart the AMA society? takes money from the food industry and so does the American Heart Association. Yeah. So... Again, that the, the purpose of these advertisings and, and uh, cooperative agreements and, and sponsorship organizations isn't to move consumers as much as it is to keep criticism to a minimum. And, and you saw the same playbook for the tobacco industry in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Yeah. And it's the same playbook, I guess, until someone gets, you know, a suit served. I guess it's just going to continue. I, you know. I think that's what happens is that the, the, the population of people who are being harmed start telling their friends mm-hmm. their, their results when they get results. And, and hopefully, and again, physicians may play a big role here and healthcare providers in general play a big role. Um, physician smoking, I think in 1970 was around 20 to 40 percent of physicians smoked. Uh, by 1985, that was down to 2%. And so, it's got to start with people who deal with this all day long and who are putting their own lives on the line with what they're doing now who know a better way and decide to go that direction. 
And are you seeing physicians? Well, you know, we're going to explore this more when we finish the break or come back after the break. But, you know, what are the major diseases, for those who don't know, that are associated with saturated fat ingestion? Well, you have nice big targets. So mm-hmm. the top two diseases globally are heart attack and heart disease in general and stroke. So that's number one and number two in the world. And saturated fat is intimately linked with the cause of both of those. And, in fact, they are caused by the same basic disease, which is atherosclerotic vascular disease, which can spread throughout the body and cause all kinds of problems all over the body. And we describe some of those possible things that people mm-hmm. can get from vascular disease in the book. Everything from erectile dysfunction to deafness to chronic back pain, uh, these have all been linked to atherosclerotic vascular disease and saturated fat. Uh, because of equations developed over a half a century ago, has been shown to be the primary driver of atherosclerotic vascular disease through its effect on serum cholesterol. Wow. So imagine if you control that one thing, how many of these right. corollary diseases and meds you can actually get off of. And, I mean, right. it's crazy. I mean, There's just no imaginable greater benefit behavioral change that I can think of. And that's why I'm shooting at this target. This mm-hmm. target is the biggest, baddest, worst <laughs> target there is. And uh, changing those numbers is going to yield more lives and more morbidity saves than any other single change. Wow. And um, how much money would we save as a society? And being able to cover yeah, people correct. with health care and not bankrupting the system. I mean, all these things, it's a domino effect, isn't it? We don't even think of it in those terms. We're just throwing good money after bad, not fixing the problem. Yeah, exactly. And that's my my concern about both political parties and and both sort of approaches to healthcare reform. Mm -hmm. The biggest problem with Americans is they get sick a lot. And the best solution to that is to get sick less. And that will, regardless of how you pay for the health care, make people's lives better and make them more productive. And so to just talk about who pays for what happens when people get sick, to me, misses the most important part of the equation. And neither side of the aisle is even discussing, you know, reducing the incidence of chronic disease, which is, which is not a difficult lift. It's an easy thing to accomplish, and it's been accomplished many places. Wow. Let's take our second break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. What's up, everybody? Bubba here. It's finally here. The long-awaited Bubba Report. Bringing you news from all the trading floors across the globe. We've got Scott Chalady, the cow guy, is seen on CNBC, Fox, and Bloomberg. We've got Keith Bliss, CNBC, Fox, and a floor trader at the New York Stock Exchange. We've got the Badger, who writes the hot topics in the political news. We've got myself putting together my own unique indexes that will help you give you a better idea of what's going on in the market. All you need to do to get a hold of the Bubba Report is go to the Bubbashow.org and sign up for the newsletter, or you can email me direct at Bubba at the Bubbashow.org. We want you to have this report because we've got over 150 years of experience talking about markets, getting ready for the trading, and puts you in the best position to have successful. So email me at Bubba at the Bubbashow.org to get a copy of your report or go right to the website, the Bubbashow.org. Make sure you get it. It's a must-have for every investor and trader. The Bubba Report. 
Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Dr. Evan Allen, author of Oversaturated, a guide to conversations about fats with your, with your patients. And he also has a website, um, drallenwellness.com. Those who live in Nevada should look him up because I think if you're going to, you know, doing the same thing, expecting a different result, it's not working. You know, if you want to get off medication, if you want to get your the power of your health back, you have to put some skin in the game. And half of the battle is finding a physician like Dr. Allen who wants to partner with his patients, educate them, empower them. I mean, that's the future of healthcare. It's not top-down. It's us as physicians educating individual patients. I, I, I love what you do. I think that more doctors need to do what you're doing, and your patients are really fortunate to have you. Well, I really appreciate the compliment. I, I hope that more people will listen to podcasts like this that you've been running and, and doing so successfully, and hopefully that will help them with the information they need because it is a really, really confusing information landscape out there, and there is a lot of misinformation that's being propagated. I think you, you, you said a few things before the break, and I think it all comes down to follow the money. And whoever has the pocketbook has the power and whoever gets the media also has a lot of power because they get to not talk about things, partially tell truths, all sorts of things. I mean, so, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to know where are, where have we, where have you heard people trying to tell people that saturated fat is good? I haven't seen that. I mean, unless you're talking about all these fast food. Oh my, I, I wish I were in your position. Uh, unfortunately, I'm on Twitter. So I deal with this all the time. <laughs> There's a whole uh, fitness, nutrition, and, and um, low-carb and ketogenic diet industry that has been telling people this sort of information now since certainly 2010, mm. uh, even going back to Gary Taub's book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, where I think he said at one point that no disease has ever been shown to be caused by fat consumption, nor has any specific kind of fat ever been implicated in, in the cause of any disease, which is a staggeringly false statement. Um, I mentioned in my book that uh, one of the researchers <laughs> called Gary Taub the single biggest source of misinformation in the nutrition and diet space, wow. which I, I find to be relatively correct. So there have been best-selling books by Taub, who makes these kinds of claims. Uh, there's another uh, best-selling book by Nina Teichold called Big Fat Surprise, which tries to argue that... Uh, the ancestral diet of human beings was very, very high in saturated fat, and that the diseases of civilization that only started in the 1900s uh, have primarily come about by carbohydrates, ignoring the fact that, you know, uh, up until 1900, almost every human on Earth through most of recorded human history has eaten a diet that's at least 65, 75% diet uh, from carbohydrate and, and certainly very low in saturated fat because saturated fat is expensive difficult to get and difficult to store uh, in, in almost any pre-industrial environment. And so um, there's been a whole movement called the carnivore movement that's been happening over the last three or four years, led by a doctor, Sean Baker, who actually advises people to only eat meat and nothing else, mm -hmm. uh, which is, to me, just staggeringly bad advice, uh, and of course going to yield a diet that's getting almost 25% of the calories from saturated fat if the meat is coming from traditional supermarket stores and things like that. So unfortunately, though, there are loud voices uh, recommending people eat large amounts of 
saturated fat. Uh, if you go on Amazon and Google, or not Google, but uh, put in their search uh, for books, saturated fat, I think the first 20 books that I looked at all recommended diets high in saturated fat and tried to argue that uh, cholesterol was not a serious cause of disease. And so that's why I felt like I had to write the book. I needed a uh, source to send people to that would counter this, uh, what I think is a really erroneous narrative. And it all started with the uh, Dairy Council, International Dairy Council meeting in Mexico City in 2008, where the dairy industry recognized that they were the number one source of saturated fat in most Western diets, and that they needed to rehabilitate the image of saturated fat in the minds of both scientists and physicians and consumers. And so they funded a study uh, through a researcher they'd worked with before, Ronald Krauss, uh, and Patty Siri Torino that came out of the Oakland Children's Hospital. That was a, quote, meta-analysis looking at the uh, intake of saturated fat versus uh, faster disease and, and, and heart disease rates. And through a statistical trick that uh, was pretty easy to get done, they were able to make the firm association in pretty much every study that they actually analyzed go away, and the trick that they did was that they controlled for serum cholesterol. Um, and as you know from just even having listened to the last, you know, bit of this podcast, the primary mechanism that saturated fat uses to uh, cause atherosclerotic disease is a raise in the level of serum cholesterol. So if you control for cholesterol, you then isolate just the individuals who eat lots of saturated fat whose cholesterol does not go up, which is a tiny subset, but you're going to magnify uh, their statistical appearance. And, yeah, it's possible they, in fact, may be resistant to the harms of saturated fat. But that is hardly a fair uh, scientific viewpoint because it's well-established that that's the mechanism through which saturated fat causes harm. And so this yielded the Time Magazine cover with butter on it saying butter is back, mm. uh, which is probably one of the biggest sources of death uh, that has ever been a single magazine cover. Um, it's hard to imagine a magazine cover that would lead to more death than that. Um and certainly is, in my opinion, journalistic malpractice, because even at that time, the state of play and the facts uh, were very, very different. Uh, you know, we have laboratory evidence from using laboratory evidence. We have cell culture evidence from using cells and culture. We have randomized controlled trial data using things like surgery to lower cholesterol. Uh, we have epidemiological data using observations over decades. And we have natural experiments where populations, for one reason or the other, have had to drop their saturated fat intake dramatically. And what we see across the board in all of these lines of inquiry is that saturated fat is uh, accelerant of atherosclerotic faster disease, and that removal of saturated fat is not only a retardant, but actually can cause reversal of atherosclerotic factors. And, you know, if this were just an isolated single finding from a single type of, of research, then one could make the claim that this is maybe a bias in the part of the researchers or is somebody who's aggressively pushing, pushing an agenda 
in one field or another, but it's not. The, the epidemiologists don't know the geneticists. The geneticists don't know the cell culture biologists. And the cell culture, culture biologists aren't working with the animal biologists. And the people running the observational cohorts aren't working with all those people. And yet they all converge on the same set of facts. So from is there a difference between like an avocado versus beef? I mean, is there any, can you say like the medium chain fats, like a, what is it, coconut oil is different? It, that, that doesn't have the same. Yes, and that's, I think that the MCT oil uh, presence in coconut is sort of a red herring. The vast majority of coconut oil is not MCT. At best, it's 12% of the of the makeup of coconut oil. Hmm. If you're buying purified MCTs, um, there are some minor arguments that they may be better. And saturated fats tend to only be harmful when they have 12 carbons or more in their total chain. So, uh, for example, a very low number saturated fats, uh, things like acetate and butyrate and propionate, uh, these are definitely health-promoting. So, you know, you're, but it's hard to say that someone's eating a high-fat diet when they're putting vinegar on their food, right? You don't <laughs> think of those as particularly, typically fats. We think of them as, you know, flavorings or seasonings or things like that. But there's no question under 12 carbons that, uh, you know, regardless of saturation, the fat is less metabolically harmful. But, you know, coconut oil's primary saturated fat is morate, and palmitate is a big component of coconut oil. And palmitate is by far the most common saturated fat in the typical human diet. And palmitate is clearly one of the most toxic substances that we've studied. We know that it uh, damages pancreatic beta cells that, that are tasked with making insulin. We know that it damages liver hepatocytes and causes them to become more resistant to the reduced amount of insulin that we find in, in the serum when we, when we give people uh, palmitate. And we know it creates a ceramide, which is directly toxic to the heart muscle itself. So uh, coconut oil has been trialed. Um, they, I think it was back, I don't have the exact citation with me, but it was back in the 1960s. They took uh, Dutch people, and they replaced all the saturated fat in their diet, uh, and a Dutch diet in the 1960s, I would imagine, was relatively high in saturated fat, with coconut oil. So they just put coconut oil in wherever they were getting butter or uh, lard or any other uh, isolated saturated fat. Mm-hmm. And what they found was cholesterol rose by about 40 points with the coconut oil compared to just the regular animal-based saturated fat. So the argument that coconut oil is beneficial to me is is very flawed, and the American Heart Association made this point in their presidential advisory when they basically stated all saturated fats are harmful because all saturated fats raise LDL and ApoB, and therefore coconut oil is not an exception and should, should be avoided as well, uh, certainly to the limit that no more than 6% of total calories in a given day should be coming from saturated fats of any type. And that's a staggeringly small amount compared to what most people eat. Interesting. On that note, let's take our last break. You're listening to Medicine on Call.
Are you having problems with persistent bad breath, constant throat clearing, hoarseness, a cough that won't go away, a sore throat, or a feeling that something's always stuck in your throat? Why not find out what the problem is so it can be fixed? At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking time to work with our patients as a team to get to the root of the problem. Make an appointment today to see why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. You're listening to Medicine on Call, where healthcare, business, and current events connect. You can catch the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, and a host of other multimedia platforms. Subscribe and share it with your friends. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Dr. Evan Allen, and before the break, I was actually getting an education myself because I was of the mindset that medium chain um, fats were pretty healthy. I have another question because it's another, you know, I've been told or I thought that grass-fed meats or beef, chicken, etc., that that would be healthier to eat than something or an animal that's corn-fed. Obviously, the GMO issue is a whole other ballgame. That's a safety issue. But I'm just curious about the fat content, omega-6 and 3, and that sort of thing. Is that reasonable to think that way? There's some reason to think that uh, grass-fed steak may have a slightly smaller percentage of fats coming from palmitate, uh, laurate, and stearate than, say, uh, would a a corn-finished animal. But uh, first of all, the number of grocery store quote grass-fed beef that's actually fed grass its entire life and not finished on a feedlot is vanishingly small. Virtually all cattle have their finishing on a feedlot, and I believe that the industry can get by with calling it grass-fed if it only spends six months on a feedlot, but don't quote me on that. I'm not mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sure. But you're talking, you're talking about differences of 1% to 3%, probably, and not substantially more than that. Whereas the difference in saturated fat between a cup of beans and grass-fed beef is zero in one and a huge amount in another. So uh, legumes are just a much better protein source for routine dietary staple intake than any animal muscle because the animal muscle by nature will have significant amounts of saturated fat. And so from a diet perspective, that's... Am I correct in saying that you think veganism might be the best way to go versus a keto well, diet? Well, my, my concerns about veganism are uh, entirely isolated to my concerns about how much saturated fat can be present in a vegan diet. Mm. So the problem is that the tropical oils, the coconut oil and palm oil, are basically staples of processed vegan food mm-hmm. uh, because they replicate the flavors and mouthfeels of the animal products that their customers are used to. So if you're buying Ben & Jerry's non-dairy, you're getting a culinary experience that's very similar to Ben & Jerry's dairy, uh, and in some cases indistinguishable. But the reason it's indistinguishable is because it's full of palm oil or coconut oil. And unfortunately, those saturated fats are not magic. We don't find any difference between plant-based saturated fats and animal-based saturated fats. Uh, the palmitate works the same way regardless of where it came from. And uh, sort of the, 
the argument the dairy industry tried to put forward, which is that, oh, yeah, red meat's really bad, and we agree, <laughs> but our dairy fats are good uh, because they have magic in them. It's no different than the argument that homeopathy works because the water remembers where it came from. You know, the palmitate doesn't remember where it came from. doesn't care if it came from a palm tree or a coconut or a pig or a cow or a chicken. Palmitate has specific known facts, you know, fact-based actions in cells, and those, cell, those actions are detrimental. So from my point of view, if you're eating a vegan diet that happens to be very low in saturated fat, then you're going to get significant health benefits, and it may very well underlie the general trend we see in, in many studies towards a vegan diet being generally healthier. But if you're just doing veganism for the ethics environment and consuming a diet very high in saturated fat, you may not realize those benefits, and if your saturated fat con- consumption goes up on a vegan diet, you may find health harm, which will make it harder for you to maintain a vegan diet, which will damage the environment and make you feel like you're not being ethical anymore when you change back to a more traditional eating plan. So I think it's important for people to understand what is uh, ethical and environmental and what is health-promoting, and that those two things don't always track. That's a good point. An excellent point, actually. So from the standpoint of – I'm going to put a different, a different way here. If you're okay. eating a diet or if you're taking – you've lowered your saturated fats, is there a point that you can go overboard? I mean, you do need cholesterol for nerve health and for brain health. I mean, is there a point that you, you, you're going too far? So this this is the big question that is existing right now in medicine as we have these new drugs called PCSK9 inhibitors, which which can drop people's LDL cholesterol down to zero, wow. uh, drop their total cholesterol into the 70s and 80s. And so the question is, what's happening to these people? Are they having neurological damage? Are they having significant issues associated with safety? And what I'll say is is that at at this point in the evidence, what we have, and this is coming from the you know, European Atherosclerosis Society from last week, um, there is essentially no safety signal at any low level of LDL down to and including zero that we've been able to identify. Now, I think it's possible, uh, and I will not, I, I would not be surprised if uh, these, these drugs end up seeing a small signal increased risk of hemorrhagic stroke. Um, there's good reason to think that a hemorrhagic stroke would be more common in an arterial wall that did not have an atherosclerotic plaque than it would be in a wall with an atherosclerotic plaque because the plaque will tend to uh, allow the wall to handle a higher uh, intraluminal pressure without rupture than would uh, a wall that's just the endothelium and, and muscle and that's it. Mm-hmm. So that is the one signal, and there's some there's some literature to suggest that very low LDL may very well be associated with hemorrhagic stroke. But in in my practice, the number of hemorrhagic strokes I've seen in normal tensive individuals so far in 25 years of practice is zero. So if your blood pressure is normal, hemorrhagic stroke is not really a big issue. Uh, and even more so, the primary risk factor that I see in hemorrhagic stroke is alcohol use disorder. And if patients have alcohol use disorder, uh, their diet is not the biggest problem. 
their biggest problem is fix the alcohol use disorder. Uh-huh. And if they fix that, their risk of hemorrhage and stroke will drop dramatically, typically by at least two-thirds. Uh, so that, that argument is not completely without merit, but I think, again, if you look at the vast number of strokes, the largest by far quantity of strokes worldwide are standard ischemic for embolic strokes. And those are almost certainly caused by atherosclerotic acid, which is dramatically reduced by very low levels of LDL. I was uh, reading something from Tom Dayspring, who's a very, very uh, well-regarded, well-known lipidologist. And he essentially says that every cell in your body can manufacture cholesterol and can manufacture all the cholesterol it needs from available uh, resources, regardless of serum cholesterol. And the serum cholesterol does not seem to affect cellular needs for cholesterol and that uh, the concerns about really low levels of cholesterol just have not borne out when we have looked at studies. But I'm open to the possibility, and I, I don't uh, generally drive anybody uh, to zero. Uh, I think putting LDL below 50 accomplishes 95% of the benefit for secondary prevention of people who had heart attacks and strokes or any other serious vascular risk, and then uh, driving it under 70 for the general population for what's called primordial prevention, I think is very reasonable. And that's something that 90% of people to 95% of people can accomplish lifestyle changes alone without any requirement for uh, medication. And do you, is there any, well, is there protection in having a high HDL so that you don't have to drive the LDL as low? Well, this has been this has been studied extensively over the last eight years, and, and is a relatively new consensus. But I think that uh, the general consensus in the lipidology community, which I'm not one, but I follow closely, is that HDL is no longer a marker of concern. Really? In other words, if your HDL is high, but your LDL is high, the HDL is not protective. Mm. And if your HDL is low, but your LDL is low low HDL is not harmful. And mm. pretty much all the substantive risk comes from the ApoB molecule, which 90% of the ApoB is going to be bound up with LDL. It's average patient, and again, patients with really high triglycerides or other lipid patterns may find a higher percentage of their ApoB in larger particles, um, but the ApoB is the, is the primary molecule of the problem. And HDL does not partake in the ApoB molecule, so it's not really involved in the process. So basically, your LDL drives everything. That's what you're really trying to control. And triglycerides right. and HDL, it's kind of, eh, you know, don't get so well, torn no, about triglycerides it. Triglycerides when high. Triglycerides when high are a big deal and should be controlled. Mm-hmm. But uh, And my, practice, my clinical practice is pretty clear-cut what happens. You look at somebody in who has really, really high triglycerides, 5, 600, 700, and you put them on medication that lowers their triglycerides, and then what happens is you get a concomitant increase in the LDL because what those were were uh, ApoB triglyceride particles. You decrease their size by treating them with fibrate or with the omega-3 fatty acids or whatever treatment you're using to lower the triglycerides, and so they just convert from being triglycerides to being LDL, and then you use a stat or something else to try to drive that. Uh, LDL down further. Well, it's, you know, the way you describe this, it's it's really, this is a thoughtful process. It's not just throwing people on two and three meds and, and hoping for the best. Right. I mean, so I think people really need to take 
a second look at what their medicines are and actually go to a physician mm-hmm. who's thoughtful like you are. I mean, I've never even, right. I'm an ENT, I don't deal with this very often, but I had no idea sure. the complexity of it, and it really gives me a, a different perspective on this whole thing. Um, now we're coming well, to in the ENT. We actually we actually have one thing in the book on ENT, which is that uh, it's fairly well established that high noise exposure is a big risk factor mm-hmm. for age-related hearing loss. Mm-hmm. But that if you combine high cholesterol with high noise exposure, it's four times worse risk than either one by itself. Wow, that's interesting yeah. to know. Oh, on that note, I learned a little something extra on this show. <laughs> uh, you know, unfortunately, we know this goes so fast. It's amazing. You just get rolling and it's over before you know it. Please tell our listeners how you can get your book. So the easiest way to get my book is to order it on Amazon. Uh, if you just search my name, Evan Allen, and the title of the book, Oversaturated, it should come up uh, as the first unpaid search result. <laughs> paid search results always come ahead of everything, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's got uh, two pats of butter and a cast iron skillet uh, melting over the title, so you shouldn't have too hard of a trouble finding it. And uh, there's a Kindle version that's a little bit less expensive, and then you can buy the paperback version if you like. Having a dead tree version of the book, um, I'm, I'm moving to the point where I really don't have any dead tree books that I buy anymore, <laughs> but uh, textbooks, I guess textbooks are still out to get a dead tree version. Yeah, you do. Got to highlight those babies. Um, and if people live in Nevada, is there the best way to reach you? Is that the DrAllenWellness.com website? Yeah, or they can just call my office. It's uh, 702-754-4900. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm going to do some more due diligence on my own diet to make sure that I'm optimizing because you, know, you have to stay healthy. There is no yeah, way wonderful. you do not want to get sick in this day and age, and you don't have to, which exactly. is really neat. Yeah, and it doesn't matter what your insurance coverage is. If you have a heart attack, you still had a heart attack. <laughs> I think, you know, that's a, I can't add anything else to that. Um, I think you just summed it up. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time, and it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it as well. All right. Have a wonderful day, and thank you for listening to Medicine on Call. Revolutionary talk for revolutionary times. Promoting peace, liberty, and prosperity around the clock. LibertyTalk.fm.